The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see you tonight. Last week, some of you were here. You know, we talked about sex, which is sort of a, not a common topic at a Buddhist meditation center, but it probably should be not so uncommon because the whole point is we're cultivating the steady, clear, fearless, non-judging presence in order to wake up, in order to be present in all aspects of life and not to have this unconscious sense that some things are better you know, left in the dark or under the covers or hidden away. But instead, it's like, like we've learned basically in life about what's healing, opening, opening things up, illuminating, taking a close look, relaxing, allowing things to reveal or present themselves. That's very healing and educational to do that in life, in all areas of life. And it's part of this longer conversation we've had about understanding how awareness is purifying or is transforming. So it's not that we bring awareness to these messy places in life like sexuality or how we consume things or our relationship to harming, our relationship to speech. It's not like we're bringing awareness in order to judge ourselves or to judge others. Of course, that's our habit, but that's not the point of being mindful. The point of being mindful is to understand, to see clearly how it is, how this experience is when we're speaking, when we're engaged as a sexual being, like when we're acting out or expressing our sexuality. What does that look like? What does it feel like? What can we learn? What kind of trace is left over when we speak, when we act, when we consume, when we express our sexuality? What's left over? What does that feel like? What's the telltale sign or the, you know, the lingering taste? You know, is it humiliation? Is it anger? Is it uh, some kind of disconnection, closing down in some way, feeling a victim? What is left over from our actions in the world? I thought tonight I'd talk about these different ways we relate to the world, right? Because this bigger topic that we've been talking about um, for the last number of weeks that we're finishing up tonight is really about bringing awareness into our worldly activities and transforming our worldly activities through awareness. And one way to think about this, it's a very, I find it a useful map. And it's not something that we should believe, but it's more a map we use to help us understand our experience. So it comes out of Buddhist cosmology. And maybe, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are people, especially in the East and Asia, that take this map literally and I think the appropriate stance is we don't know. We don't know about, you know, the ultimate cosmology of the world. But that 
description can be very useful and just getting to know our very real mind. So there are many planes, I think like 31 planes of existence in Buddhist cosmology, but it's usually described as six realms. So there's a hell realm, as you might imagine, and uh, then a hungry ghost realm, an animal realm, the human realm, the warring god realm, and then the more refined angelic realm. Now, again, the idea is, when as I describe these different realms of existence, to recognize them in your own life, that these are different mind states that we have. Right? Sometimes, has anybody in the room never been in a hell realm? Right? We've all been in hell realms. Anybody been an animal, right? Acting basically with the mentality of all the other four-legged creatures around us or, you know, the feathered creatures or the, you know, the, the bugs, crustaceans. You know, we've acted like all of those simple animals at times. And so it's just a useful way of getting a sense of how we can be deluded in different ways. Because the the expression of delusion as a someone in a hell realm is different than someone in an angelic realm. So we need to, you know, the whole point is there's no freedom without understanding how the mind is caught or how the mind is being limited by its particular understanding that it has in that moment. And then, of course, that limitation affects how we are in the world, how we relate to each other. You know, how we are in our sexual relations or how we are with our speech and, or how we are in terms of consuming what we take or that circle of giving and receiving that I just mentioned. Like the center operates in that circle of receiving the programs freely, responding in a way that makes you happy, contributing in a way that makes you happy. So how that looks depends on what realm, what sort of mind state or perspective we have in any given moment. So let's move through these. And it, and a lot of what we're noticing is like what seems important is different in different realms. So when we're in a hell realm, right, that means things are really difficult, really unpleasant. And what we tend to pay attention to in a hell realm is how unpleasant it is, right? So we're feeling tortured, we're feeling oppressed, and the mind keeps focusing, paying attention to exactly the experience that seems unbearable, overwhelming, too much, right? So you get the sense of how being in a hellish realm, we pay attention to exactly that which reinforces and amplifies the hellish nature of the hellish realm, right? Have you noticed that when you're really in a difficult or dark or heavy place? That it's so hard not to look at that which is exactly terrorizing us. I mean, even in simple ways, if you have like an injury or kids, you know, with their scabs, they can't leave it alone. Or the dog, you know, I, you see, I don't, I've never had a dog, but sometimes you see the dog with the muzzle around it because it has something and it keeps licking it. It won't leave it alone. Just, and this is our, our tendency. So in a hellish realm, 
we tend to get exhausted staring, focusing on what's too hard to bear, right? So then we, we tend to crash, hopeless, being the victim, feeling completely oppressed. And then, but it's interesting how then there can be a real flash of anger. Sometimes the, the pain we're experiencing in, in, in moments of our life, the only thing that seems to make sense is to make other people hurt so then at least we're not alone. I mean, it's not that we actually think that. But have you noticed yourself when you're in a really difficult space acting out in a way that hurts other people? It's so interesting. I see that even in little ways in my relationship with my wife. Sometimes when I'm in a, you know, in a really yucky place, I just notice like the way I talk, the way I act is, uh, causes her to get upset. And then, I mean, it, it, isn't, it isn't sane at all. It isn't rational at all. But I just notice that. And I notice it with other people too who are in difficult places. It's like we spread it around, spread the suffering around. So this is sort of interesting about hell realms. You know, when we think about people terrorizing, you know, it's just like uh, now, culturally, we're obsessed with terrorists. And, uh, but, but we're not very thoughtful about what leads someone to be a terrorist, like wanting to terrorize or harm other people. Well, it's when somebody has no hope and has felt oppressed. I mean, I'm sure there may be other causes for people to do terrible things in the world. But one of them is just being oppressed over and over again. And then somebody just, they don't care who they hurt. They just want to be empowered in some way. And one thing they can do is they can make other people suffer. So they do. And feel somewhat empowered in that doing. Of course, it doesn't lead to real happiness, as we all know. But it's a break from feeling helpless. So the question is, how do we get out of hell realms? Well, the way out of each of these realms as we walk through it tonight, you'll see is when we're in a hell realm or any of these realms, the condition habit is very strong. So Breaking out, becoming free, is not doing what is strongly the mind is strongly conditioned to do. So when we're in a hell realm, we want to look at the pain. There's a story, one of, one of these other set of stories in the Buddhist tradition, the Jataka tales. They're made-up stories mostly, I'm assuming. They came, arose later, after the time of the Buddha, most of them. And there are stories of what happened to the being that later became the Buddha. So the idea is sometime way, 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 way long ago, there was a person who had the aspiration to be a Buddha. And then it took this person an innumerable number of lifetimes to develop the personality, the right set of personality skills to be a good teacher. And so one of them, this person, this being, again, just take it as a sort of an allegory or story, was in hell. And it was one of the hot hells. And, you know, you can just imagine somebody 
saw the movie Moses when you were a kid, some of you maybe. The slaves, you know, or burning. You can imagine instead of the son of Egypt, you know, burning in hell, dragging some weight with a bunch of other people with guards whipping you. And uh, so this is the Buddha-to-be is there, suffering, obsessed with his suffering, obsessed by how painful his life, his existence is. And then the person next to him falls, and the guards are just beating him. And he takes his mind off of his own pain and suffering and turns his attention to the person with compassion. Oh, you're really having a hard time. And so immediately, you can't be in hell anymore, right? Because by definition, hell realm, it doesn't actually have to do with your outer conditions. It has to do with what you're doing with your attention. I was reading an article recently and they were quoting, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, is it Eddie Hilson or something like that? She was a young woman in the Holocaust in one of the concentration camps and she somehow was able to hide her diary. She was killed eventually in the camp. And then uh, it got published many decades later. It's an amazing book. Um, One of our community members, Rebecca, is reading it now and Every few days she sends me another quote, <laughs> so it's great. I told her, I said, I, I'm not going to have time to read the whole book, so send me all the good quotes. But it's interesting, you know, probably a lot of the people who were uh, in the concentration camps spent a lot of their time in a hell realm. I mean, you could just imagine how difficult it would be not to keep putting your attention on all the terrible things that were going on and how bad they were, how unbearable they were, right? But somehow, because of the qualities of her mind, she was able to not do that. She was able to see what was beautiful and not be in denial of what was terrible. So she didn't, because, you know, to say, don't look at that, well, that's a way of obsessing. That, that's being in the hell realm. The hell realm is both looking at it, but trying not to look at it is a way of saying this is too hard to look at. So either way, avoiding it or looking at it, the mind is obsessed. It's caught. It's trapped in the suffering. And whether it's trying to sort of make it go away or deny it's there, it's just adding to the suffering. So there is a way out of each of these realms And it's basically not following the habit energy of the realm, right? Not continuing the obsessive tendency in that realm. So having compassion for ourselves or for another breaks the realm. It's now you're in a different realm. You're not in the hell realm when you're caring about your life or caring about others' lives. Actually caring. Because the state of compassion is not a hellish state. People sometimes misunderstand. They think compassion is a heavy state because you're opening to suffering. But compassion is a liberated state. People mistake sometimes pity, which is a heavy state for compassion. But pity is being afraid of the suffering, your suffering or somebody else's suffering, and wanting it to go away. And it may, it may seem like it's compassion, but it's actually aversion to suffering when we have pity. So real compassion is not being afraid of the suffering. We're 
feeling enlivened by it. We're wanting that suffering, our suffering, somebody else's suffering, to go away. We're wanting to respond. We're wanting to do whatever can be done. If there's nothing to be done, we're just willing to show up and be there because there's nothing to be done. But if there's something to be done, we're willing to do it. So it's an enlivening, liberated feeling to be compassionate, not a heavy state. That's how you know it's compassion. Some of you, I'm sure, have had this experience when you're with a loved one who's in a really difficult place and you felt really alive. It, it can be actually confusing in the mind because there's a, that very alive feeling and yet this dear person, this person who's dear to you is suffering. And you can feel guilty until you realize, no, no, I'm really here and if there's something to do, I'm going to do it and I really care about this person. But it's the selflessness that makes it so alive. Not the fact that you like the the fact that the person's suffering, but that you're really 100% there so you're liberated from your self-centered dramas temporarily. And it's very enlivening. So that's the hell realm. And then the next one up from that, up in the sense that the delusion, like what's driving the delusion? So in the hell realm, it's extreme unpleasantness, right? So the next step, it's also very unpleasant. It's called the hungry ghost realm. And the depiction is a being with a huge appetite. So often when they artistically depict this, the being has this huge belly, but a, a mouth the size of a pinhole. So impossible to gratify the hunger. So this is the suffering of addiction. And I was saying, I gave this talk this morning, and I was saying, you know, if um, there was a secret video camera videotaping myself eating when nobody's around, sometimes, you know, I eat in that addictive, addicted way. Have you ever done this? (laughs) Right? And we would never want anybody to see the videotape, right? when we've got just you, the ice cream, I mean me, rather, <laughs> the ice cream and a spoon. <laughs> or sometimes not a spoon. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yes. And I notice sometimes in that feeding frenzy, <laughs> I notice that at some point I'll even be aware it's not even pleasant. That's the sign it's addictive, right? It's just like you're just acting out the addiction. And it's just like, I'm just going to finish it. I'm just going to finish it because it's there. (laughs) Because we want, it's like, it's so painful to be addicted to whatever it is I'm doing that I I don't want it around. But of course, we bring it back. We find another way to get more. But we're, we're thinking that we'll be done. And in a way, temporarily, we will be done when the ice cream's gone or the bowl of spaghetti's gone or whatever it is when it's done. You know, there's a relief. Until the next thing. There's this great cartoon I saw. This is way back right when I was beginning my meditation practice in the early 80s. I was living in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And there's a paper called the East Bay Express. I don't know if it still exists. Maybe so. But there was a series of cartoons called the Subconscious Cartoon or something like that. I forget the name of it. And it showed this being, sort of human-like being, sitting on a planet. And, you know, it's just sort of dull. And then the next frame is sort of 
ah, I want that. And then each frame, you know, it's a sort of the desire increases. Ah, oh, 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 you know, really getting enormous. And then la- or second to last is like, totally, he gets what he wants. <coughs> you know, it's like that. Ah. Oh. And then the next frame is, what's that? <laughs> and the whole series begins again. But with Hungry Ghost, it doesn't, it's like you never even get that satiation. It's always trying to get that release of finally having it, right? But it's, you can't quite get there. Have you had that with food or with whatever, just like even trying to get settled in your bed at night and you just, you know, you can't get what you're looking for. And then you try harder, right? Try to cram more in, try to eat, try to more salt, more sugar, and you can't quite get, find the sweet spot. That's the suffering of the hungry ghost. And that the obsession is like, I've got to find, I've got to find the joy or the release of gratification. And we think we're going to get it by consuming, but consuming never does it. Right? Because the pain we're trying to quench is the dependence on consuming. So it's keep going to, uh, it's the fact that we keep going to consuming, getting, that is the cause of the pain that we're trying to release. So of course, consuming is not going to lead to the release. And so that's its own kind of hell realm, right? Now how do we step out of that? Well, we break the cycle by not acting out the habit energy. So, to step just to put it down. It's like uh, if you're finding yourself like with media, always looking for something interesting and you've been watching video or whatever, TV, and then you just shut it off. Or even better, you know, your internet puts you on pause, right? You lose your connectivity and all of a sudden it's gone. And it's just, it's like such a relief. But then, right, the mind mistrusts the feeling of relief and wants more, wants to be entertained again. So that's the hungry ghost realm. And the next realm up, so the obsession is different at each realm. With the hell realm, the obsession is with the suffering itself. The mind is obsessed with the pain. And so it either lashes out or gives up, but it's obsessed with the pain. With the hunger ghost realm, it's obsessed with consuming, but never satisfied with it. With the animal realm, we're obsessed with safety, that sort of animal vigilance. Who here in the room is a threat? What do you think about me? What are you thinking about me? You know, and how can I impress you? Or the squirrel who's gathering the nuts, always looking, more nuts. When, there, when are there enough nuts, you know? Or when is the nest sturdy enough? Always looking around, always vigilant, always thinking, if I just get my act together, I'm going to be safe, you know? Now how much? If I put in this much every year, then when I'm 65, 10% a year, that, oh, that's an, okay, how about if I, and then it's like a, 
you know, we have water seeping into the basement. Well, I'll put in drain tile and then I'll slope. Those of you who have homes know about this. And you slope the ground away, you know, and then you rip up all the plants that have roots that would go anywhere near your house. And when you still have it, then you asphalt the whole yard, (laughs) right? I mean, it's like we can get obsessive about all of these things. Like, how can we get all the ducks in a row? Well, we never do. We never get all the ducks in a row. And everything perfect and everything safe. And now, then, ah, now I can relax. But we never get there. Because there are always threats. We can always... And of course, the more we're in the animal realm the more that we can, you know, there are possible threats that we don't know about. Like I watch my cat. She's always assessing the threats. You know, we open the door, she's, an out, she's allowed to go outside. You know, she's always assessing the threat. She stands there, sometimes for several minutes. You know, is it safe to go out there? Because there are brutes out there, bigger cats than her. You know, and they pick on her. <laughs> so she's always, you know, and smelling and the birds, some of the birds kind of swoop at her. So and they're always like making this calculation. And we're an animal sometimes, right? So how can we break that obsession? Well, it's like our cat does sometimes when she feels safe enough. We have a pretty skittish cat. It was one of the rescue cats. And I think she had some traumatic experiences when she was young. So now that she's 17 or 18, she's starting to relax a little bit in moments, you know, where she'll actually lie on her side and kind of like show her belly, you know, and really let you touch her. And uh, so we can do that. That's how we break that like we're dropping for a moment the constant activity of increasing our safety. And we're just showing our belly, being vulnerable, being playful, with no agenda, you know, to get something out of it. So the important thing is to recognize, because when we're an animal, then we neglect ourselves and others. When we're a hungry ghost, we neglect, neglect ourselves and others. When we're in the hell realm, we neglect ourselves and others. So we're causing harm. So if we want to purify our actions or cultivate this reverence for life, protecting ourselves and others, then we have to recognize when we're in the hell realm and the hungry ghost realm and the animal realm. And now the human realm. You might. What do you think the obsession is in the human realm? So we have like all realms, because we're not a fully awake, fully alive, fearless human being, there's an underlying existential anxiety. So in the human realm, we don't want to feel that. Nobody wants to feel that because it's yucky. So we stay really busy lining up pleasant experience. We get addicted to like hobbies and, you know, just different things. It's silly. Like the guy who has the biggest ball of twine. Or, you know, I mean, some of you have... How many people in this room have more than three or four ways of making coffee in your house? <laughs> you know, the French press, the little espresso maker, the coffee maker. Maybe you have one of those $2,000 machines, espresso machines, right? 
It's like we all have our little like delights. Or maybe, you know, you collect this or you're you know, you're obsessed with your garden and the this is and the that's or you have neat um you know, shoes or whatever it is. Sports equipment, backpacking equipment, planning trips, eco trips, this kind of trip or energy efficient home. So we have all these things that distract us, that we're, we get obsessed, that look relatively wholesome. They're not, they don't seem very oppressive, but it's like keeps us from being real and alive and connecting with other human beings because we're obsessed with these little things or sometimes seemingly big things. We fill our lives with them. Even meditation retreats and who's the better teacher and this Dharma book and that Dharma book and what kind of meditation shawl you have and you know how you sit and the kind of cushion you have. All these things we fill up our lives with. And then we see somebody else and with their kind of fascination and we want that. So we start fast getting fascinated by that. And people get into yoga and this. And there's really no end to these sort of activities and hobbies and fascinations that we can fill our lives with. I mean, how many trips can we take around the world before we run out of interesting places to go? There's no end. And then after a while, it's been five years since you've been there, so you can go back because it's changed, right? And you can see how it's changed. But the problem here with this kind of obsession is we're lost. We're kind of missing the point, which is to be in the moment, to be real, and to be like in this particular aspect of practice, we're really interested in how we're setting in motion suffering for ourselves and others. How do we purify our actions, our way of being in the world? And this is messy work, but it's liberating work. So we don't want to do the messy work. We think we can somehow avoid it. So we fill our lives up with interesting activities. The internet is a dangerous place for people in the human realm, right? Because there's always, seemingly, always something interesting to discover in the internet. And it doesn't matter that 89, 91% of the things we look at in the internet, stressful and not fun and not good, but we always imagine the next thing, you know, will be just a bit of information. So we collect information too. Fascinating things. And then we tell other people about them. Have you seen? You should go. We send them out to people. Right? And we miss our life, basically. So that's the human realm. Obsessing about things that are interesting and pleasant. And and filling our life with distraction. That ultimately isn't that important, but seems important in the moment. Because... By definition, those obsessions, that's what we're doing. We're whipping up the interest. It's always easy to see with another person when somebody is like really interested in something that we're not and they just go on and on and we go, oh my God, they are in a bubble, you know, a self-created bubble. They've decided this is important and then everything they do is based on that presumption that this is important or this is cool or this is interesting. But it's just... Nothing. You know, and it's like that book, maybe you read it as a kid, The Emperor Has No Clothes, or 
They said something like that, right? But nobody says anything to the person. And it's kind of like cute. Oh, this person, they're obsessed with this. That's who they are. You know, they're into, you know, retro this. You know, I, I had friends, I've had friends, and they just were so into making their house 50-ish, you know, and like collecting things like with Naga hide and, and this and that. It's like, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure why, but it seems relatively harmless and we sort of play along with it. Like, oh God, that's amazing. Where did you find that? <laughs> and in a way, we're all complicit <clears throat> in these things instead of saying, you know, I don't really get it. How, now, how does this lead to happiness? Where does this, like, where's the happiness in this? We don't say that to people because somehow it's rude to pop people's bubbles. And then we have this sort of unspoken agreement, don't pop my bubble, I won't pop yours. <laughs> right? So that's, that's the human realm. And then the next realm up is what we call the warring God realm. <clears throat> and these are, this is when we're obsessed with status and being superior. And of course, the opposite, being afraid of somebody being more superior than us. So envy. And it's like uh, all about rank. And we just love, this is where we love the game. That's sort of like crawling our way to the top. Who's up? Who's down? Who sits in the most steady way in this room? Anybody look around tonight when we were sitting? Who looked most serene? You know, was it me? <laughs> because we, it's like we're into that game of status and wanting to be the one on top. And when we're not, you know, we change the rules where it's not fair. This person had an early start or this, you know, because somehow we have to keep ourselves on the top, on the top of the list. And we're afraid of not being on the top of the list. And when we see people who are on the top, we want to diminish them. You know, or they probably are neurotic like me, you know. Well, who knows what happens when they're behind closed doors. Yeah. Oh, I bet, you know, I bet. And we like, you know, this is like the celebrity fascination, which we're all part of. Building people up, tearing them down. All about... This fascination with status. It doesn't matter what the ranking is about, actually. It's just about up and down. It's just a sort of play of the ego, up and down, up and down, up and down. And then, of course, it's pretty easy to see how we can get, um, cause harm with this kind of activity of mind. Right? I mean, it's like always like, whether somebody has, whether they matter. Well, I can't really care about you because you don't have any status. You know, if I associate with you, I'm losing status. But if I associate with you, I'm gaining status, right? So it's like, that's called harming. You know, when we're throwing people out of our heart or including people because of what we get, that's greed, that's not love, that's not friendship. Of course, we all play this game to some degree. Certainly in moments, we're playing this game, right? And like all these realms, we step out when we stop playing the game, when we don't go along with the habit. So instead, if we're in a really competitive environment, 
But instead of getting seduced by it and playing along, we understand the suffering involved. We see it. And we have compassion. And we realize how everybody's trapped. The guy on the top, the person on the top is trapped. The person on the bottom is trapped. Everyone crawling around in between is trapped. Everybody's suffering. And nobody stays on top forever. Whatever the category is, nobody stays on top forever. And then, so that's the warring God, obsessed with status, competition, rank. And then the Deva realm, that's interesting, the depiction for the angelic realm, people, beings rather, in really refined, beautiful realms, Cosmologically speaking, these beings exist in that realm for an incalculable amount of time. Like, you know, they, in ancient India, you know, they talked about this in terms of world, how many world expansions and world contractions, right? So they had some sense of the Big Bang and then the implosion that follows someday, maybe in the future. And many of those. They're, they're one of these refined beings of light, let's say. And the thing about these beings, <clears throat> as the stories go, so when they're born, they immediately come into the full bloom of young adulthood. Radiant, healthy, you know, beautiful. And they stay just like that for this incalculable length of time until they're about to die. And then it happens very quick. So they don't like go through the aging process. They go from this pure, full bloom to very quickly to death. So it's quite a shock. Right? Because here the obsession, the delusion is, this is it. Because it's bliss. It's pure pleasantness. And it goes on forever. So there's a sense it will always be this way. No, we've, some of us at least, have been in these states where our good fortune, the ease in our life, the happiness, the pleasantness, seems like it's just like, oh yeah, this is it. It's going to be this way forever. And then something happens. We lose our job that we didn't expect to lose. Or, you know, whatever it is that happens. We get sick. Somebody we love dies. We get herpes. You know, things like, that shouldn't happen to us, happen. Oh, that's that wasn't in the cards. That wasn't in the story I was telling myself. Why me? There's a funny story. Uh, one of my teachers told of visiting her aunt, who was 94, who just found out she had some kind of terminal cancer. And uh, so this teacher of mine visited her aunt. And the first thing, or one of the first things her aunt said to her when she went to visit her, was, why me? And you can imagine somebody 94 being surprised by the fact that you get sick, that it's not that uncommon to get sick and die when you're in your 90s. Like that that would be a shock. And so this is part of that realm, you know, where we think whatever is good is going to happen forever. People who think their relationship is just great until the person says that they're not happy anymore and they want to try something else. And it can feel like, why didn't I know that? We feel betrayed because the story we were telling ourselves turned out 
not to be true. But part of the story we were telling ourselves is the story, and then we were adding on, and this is the truth. And then all of a sudden, it's a different story, and it's such a shock. So here, the way we cause suffering when we're in a deva realm, an angelic realm, is we're in that bubble, and we're very conveniently keeping out of the bubble anything that would distract us from the pleasantness, like the fact that there are other beings who are suffering. This deva realm is, is kind of like the state of privilege where you know, we just feel like, well, this is how it's supposed to be, you know, whatever our relative comfort is or relative security is. And we have stories that explain it. Yeah, yeah, it's not fair, but you know, that somehow it's going to correct itself. It's changing or something like that. But one way or another, we want to be comfortable in our comfort, like justified in our comfort, normalizing our comfort, not recognizing it's a bubble and that this bubble depends on being disconnected, which is suffering for ourselves and others. Right? So... Uh, the how we break that cycle. This is obviously not an easy thing for someone to do. Like in the Buddhist cosmology, it's much harder to practice in you, if you're in a deva realm than if you're in a human realm. Because in the deva realm, in order to wake up, in order to have deep insight, you have to be willing to step outside of your very, very, very pleasant bubble and open to the messy world. Now, who is going to do that on purpose? We do that when we're forced, when somebody <clears throat> or some circumstance pops your bubble. But when you're in the bubble and nobody's popping it, nothing's popping it, and somebody says you're in a bubble, well, part of the bubble is, yeah, that's, that sounds right. Let's form a committee. You know, I'll bring croissants. <laughs> you bring the cold-pressed coffee, you know, and this great Japanese sense of tea. You know, and then we'll have we'll meet, we'll talk about this, <laughs> and then we'll feel better. Our deva realm will be even more angelic, right? Because now we're caring human beings in our deva realm. We care about it. We care about the suffering of the world, as long as we can have our bubble. So it's it's uh, it's not easy in any of the realms. It's not easy to to break the habit to look at the pain when you're in hell, to look at the pleasantness and be deluded by it. Like, oh yeah, it's like somehow it's deserving. Sometimes, somehow it's going to last. This is the way it's supposed to be. Instead of saying, this is a fragile, this pleasantness, this stability, this comfort is fragile. And it depends on innumerable causes and conditions, including the fact that other beings are suffering. Other beings are suffering. Their suffering is not independent of my comfort. We're all, this is all one soup, which we tend to forget. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. And it's just nice to have people reflect back how you're recognizing being in any of these six realms. Hell, hungry ghost, animal realm, human realm, warring God realm, angelic realm. And how you've gotten stuck, how you've gotten out of, and maybe how you've caused suffering being caught in one of these realms. And one of our generous community members 
donated some money, so we have actually a really nice mic, so we can hear each other a little bit better. We can just pass it around, and you have to hold it close to your mouth. It's a directional mic, which means we won't get that terrible feedback sound, but we won't hear you unless you put it right up against your mouth. So any comments for the community, any questions that you have? Yeah, Robin, here. So up around my familiarity with it, um, it's, it's associated with like the, the karmic um, retribution process. And if you acquire a lot of negative karma based on how you engage the world, then you can be born back into one of those realms. So is that also the same process as even in your, your current existence, you can still have those experiences in those various realms. So now I'm confused um, in a sense because I always thought it was associated to like, oh, karma, when I die, if I was an angel, I'll be in that angel realm or if I'm just horrific, then I'll be in hell or something like that. Yeah. So, so this is true. In the tradition, there's a lot of talk about uh, at the moment of death, which is a lot like each moment of our life, because in each moment of our life, this moment, the qualities of the mind in this moment, they're ceasing, but before the qualities of the mind in this moment cease, they condition the next moment of the mind. So the next moment of mind, mind experience arises, having been conditioned by the previous moment. So each moment is a death, quite literally. This moment ceases in order for the next moment. Now, we don't catch this because we're not paying attention in a refined enough way. But when you develop your practice, you start to see this very radical impermanence where moment to moment things are ceasing and being literally born again, arising. So at the time of death, the moment, the quality of the mind at the time of death conditions the next moment of existence. And whether, like in the Tibetan system, you're in a bardo state, a transition time, or whatever, however that process happens, I don't know. But what does seem to make sense is that the mind has its own continuity that's different than the trajectory of the body, right? So there is a continuity of the mind, one mind moment conditioning the next. But it doesn't mean, like, if you were a really nasty person, but... At the moment of death, the qualities that were there were relatively wholesome. Then your next existence may not be hell. But that doesn't mean that those, all those nasty moments haven't made an impression on your mind stream. They have, but they just haven't ripened yet. And maybe you'll be in a really nice place, but have really hellish thoughts, right? But I wouldn't spend too much time thinking about that because it's not personal in any case. And all we can do is show up to where we are and what's arising for us now and to be as skillful as we can. Because if I'm in this moment and I'm thinking, why, are, why aren't I in a better existence, you know, with better conditions? You know, instead of being born in North Minneapolis, why wasn't I born in, you know, Edina? Or why wasn't I born in and we can go on and on like this. Um, but the fact is, this is the life that's showing up. And what's skillful now is to be paying attention. What is the best way to be relating 
in this moment? What is the best way to be showing up in this moment? What is the liberating way, the freeing way to be showing up in this moment? That's what really matters. So it's all about, because right now is when karma is being created. How the mind is showing up is where we create karma, set something in motion. So to spend a lot of time thinking about the past, it's useful to a degree to kind of get that it's lawful, but what we're really interested in is, well, what's, so given that it's a lawful universe, what are we setting in motion right now by how we're relating? Yeah, thanks, Robin. Anybody else? Comments, questions? Yeah, right behind you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I, I like how this story kind of, um, it's, it's related to the animal, what's it called? Animal realm? Yeah, the animal realm. Because um, it's still somewhat affecting my life now, but I went through a period of like two and a half years of uh, being really addicted to exercise and uh, at the same time like, basically based on like a very intense job that I had at the time. And um, uh, the story goes, I was like in the thick of it for about a year and a half. Knew that I wanted to learn some things related to my career in terms of like, I was working from home by myself. Uh, I was working from home by myself day in day out and uh, wanted to learn how to delegate essentially. So I had some friends who had an office down in Indiana who were working in the same industry as me, and uh, I made it my news resolution to go down there and live for two or three months to learn. And this was in the thick of like having a really, really focused mind to the point of like setting up my entire life to where like I bought the same groceries every week uh, and knew exactly where everything was and was. Uh, really addicted to exercise and watching all nine seasons of Roseanne as a break sometime. Uh, so I went down there and was literally only there for 30, less than 36 hours because I didn't know where my milk was or where anything was that I had set up in my life at home. So I, I panicked, absolutely panicked. I drove home uh, 12 hours and I remember calling my dad on the way there and thinking like, But of course, when I got home, I knew where my love was. So everything went back to normal. And I finished first hand. It was, it was good. Uh, and then eventually, like a year later, that bubble really popped. And it's uh, still kind of having some residual effects right now. I really related to that. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. And it's amazing how raw we can be when the bubble pops like it sounds like you are a little now still, but that doesn't mean we're not more alive, right? Yeah, thanks so much for being willing to share that. In the back, you want to pass it back to him? My name is David, and um, I, I'm in a very comfortable bubble, and I have sessions that I'm extremely fond of, uh, more powerful than corn chips. I have that one. But um, the warring gods are really related to that world, you know, of status and power, and I'm just curious, what 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 should we be doing? I mean, I, I simply want to go work harder in the things that I do well, 
What if I just let go of that? What well, when I do, I feel I can just feel it. I feel um, empty and like all this energy and nowhere to put it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So that would be the way to break that warring God realm is to feel all this desire to engage and to do and to solve and to, you know, kind of win, basically, and <clears throat> to not do it, right? And to feel that, like to make peace with the fear, that naked feeling or that raw feeling, because you won't know who you are. So it's a little bit like... Uh, you know, when people who have been married for a long time and then they break up and they don't know who they are anymore because they had defined themselves in the relationship or people who were employed for a long time and then lose their job and they don't know who they are. So it's exactly what happens when we pop the bubble of any of the realms. We don't know who we are. Like if we had been in the hell realm for a long time and then we somehow it pops, it's like all we know is how to be the victim. And this is like really interesting. I, I heard someone give a lecture, this is way long time ago, at the University of Chicago, um, about the Jews leaving Egypt. And his theory was like they wandered for 40 years, basically so that anybody who was born into slavery died before they went to the promised land, right? Because they didn't want people with the slave mentality running the show in the new land, because they would recreate that sort of, it's hard to, to grow out of being in a hell realm. Because that's all we know. And so we, our mind tends to recreate what it knows. Just like in our romantic relationships, you know. Don't do that again. And then we start going out with somebody else, and we do the same thing over again. Because the mind recreates what it knows. So we, so... You have to be a little bit playful and you have to take some chances like what you're going to do, you know, like do something collaborative <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, that that isn't sometimes like I had a good friend um, uh, or one of the teachers here and our office manager. She died a couple of years ago, um, but a dear friend. But anyway, she she told me that sometimes she would practice. She called it the opposite practice. And she would just do the opposite of what her mind was inclined, just as an experiment, not in any harsh way, but just to be playful. So you want to, and then you do the opposite. <laughs> Let us know how it goes. <laughs> we need to leave it here. It's 8.30. So we'll just take a minute, let go of the words, just enough time for a couple breaths together. appreciate having this community and these wonderful teachings that have been passed down generation by generation because of the women and men who did their practice and their busy lives, learned a few things or a lot, passed it along. Now it's our turn in our busy lives to be reflective, to train the mind to be more awake and to set in motion the causes for peace and freedom from suffering for ourselves and for all beings. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. 
To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.